Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, we have the distinct pleasure of having Reverend Grayland Hagler, the Senior Minister of Plymouth Congregational Church, on the line with us. Good morning, Reverend Hagler. Good morning. How are you? Can you hear me well? Great, great. I hear you real well. Good. Yeah. So, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, moving and just doing what we got to do. Okay, so let's get into. What? I should ask you, how are you? <laughs> I, I'm fighting a little cold. I'm getting over it. It's been over a week now, but uh, it, it, I'm, it's coming. It's coming. Don't don't let it get you down. Yes, it had me down. It did have me down. <laughs> um, All right. And how do we get people to get out and vote? And I got even before that, when you were on the last time, you talked about how people when they come in they take over and they call it colonialization and where people in a lot of communities had communal living. They they all helped each other and pitched in and they didn't have anything called like private property. It was all communal living as part of of the spirituality of, of the groups. So why is it when people come in and they'll come in often with something they call democracy, but they won't let people get educated or won't let them vote? Well, it's it's really the construction of the whole system when you look at it. I mean, it's one of the things that uh, Reverend uh, Martin Luther King said that a, um, a edifice that produces beggars needed to be restructured. And that was the sort of the whole basis of his whole economic justice campaign, the Poor People's Campaign, Resurrection City, uh, was to really sort of begin to re-examine the things that we have just accepted as part of the narrative of, of America and to raise the question of whether that is really true. Because one thing is the structure. The structure produces people that can be exploited, people who can, in a sense, can be on the rungs of the base of the ladder so that those at the top, uh, the narrow few at the top of the pyramid can basically reap all the results. So all the rest of us are exploited so that a few, uh, in a sense, can enrich themselves. And it's usually uh, folks who have already enriched themselves. So it's our, our labor, our efforts, uh, our, our work at the bottom that basically ingratiates and, and gratifies those at the top. So that's just structured by design. Well, of course, that's structured by design. I mean, when we look at this country, I mean, this country was built upon a, um, a, a free labor force, which was enslavement. And, and uh, I mean, that was an opportunity for all. That was exploitation for all. Uh, and, and, and therefore, it also was built upon uh, indentured servitude, indentured servitude that led towards enslavement. They wanted to make sure that blacks and, and, and whites did not get together, indentured servants and slaves did not get together. So they created an indentured servitude, which was a permanent state of slavery for black folks and, uh, and a system in which uh, whites could basically work and pay their way out of to make sure 
to make sure that those on the bottom remain suspicious of one another and in competition to each other, uh, and therefore will never create the coalitions that are needed to basically change the system. So the whole focus of Dr. Martin Luther King and the Poor People's Campaign and now Reverend Barber and you are a co-chair in D.C. of the Poor People's Campaign is to get people that are poor, 50 percent below the median family income, to come together and work together. Oh, oh yeah. Sure. I mean, and if you look across the country and this is this is sort of the, the irony is that those who are in face facing environmental racism are poor communities. Those who are facing the worst in terms of health care, poor communities. Those where uh, voter suppression takes place, poor communities. I mean, though, I mean, you just go right on down the line. If every kind of uh, ill that we talk about, those are poor communities that are exposed to it. Uh, and uh, and you know, and it's 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 interesting how people end up really being um, diluted into another kind of narrative, thinking somehow. Oh, I could be born poor and I can finish life rich. Well, you possibly, but that's exceptionalism. That's that's few and far between. Or it's like I can rise up to be president. That's few and far between. I mean, just look at it. I mean, right now you've got billionaires that's that's vying uh, to see who's going to be president of the United States. And that's to protect the interests of billionaires and millionaires. Wow. So what is the hope for people at the bottom rung this Fifty percent of the of the of the population that are. Well, I think part of the hope is to organize, to work, to try to change the narrative and our viewpoint in terms of the history of the nation. I mean, one thing is that when I go to uh, a lot of churches to preach, I preach about, uh, for example, Black history, and uh, it's interesting how much we do not know as Black folks, and therefore you know you do not know it as white folks. I mean, so it's important for one that we begin to realize that the narrative that is presented is not the narrative that exists. There's a different narrative. That's one thing. And if you begin to tap into that, you begin to also to tap into awareness, and awareness leads to people making decisions with a new kind of passion and a new kind of focus. You know, and part of what we have is we have an apathetic uh, voting population. Uh, and, and that's because, in a sense, you know, people have bought into the narrative and, and you end up saying, well, what's wrong? The narrative doesn't work for me. The narrative doesn't apply to me. Um, the narrative has nothing to do with me. So you feel ap- apathetic towards the vote. Well, that's part of telling the story is to remind folks that, you know, our, our, our ability to change things is our ability uh, to fight to be able to vote, to make sure our votes count to make sure that we just don't go for what we think that we can get, but we go for that which basically reflects the history and our aspirations. Because one of the things that we point out is that when you look at all the elections, not one time in any of the, all the debates we had leading up to 2016, poor people were not raised one time, working class issues were not raised one time in, in, in all of those debates. Issues around militarism is just rah-rah for the military. Uh, rather than looking at all of this money that has been spent in military. And it's so interesting that we always talk about, when we talk about health care, we say, where's the money going to come from? We talk about buying a missile. Nobody raises the question of where the money's going to come from. We just find it. Uh, I mean, that's the that's the irony of, of it. When, when we talk about helping the common good, all of a sudden there's a problem. Don't have enough money to help people. 
That's right. And have a lot of money to kill people, fight a war. Okay. Reverend Hank, let's go all the way back. What's your background? I know you're, you were raised in Baltimore, but how did you get to be a preacher? What's that path? Well, I was one of those folks that I, I would say that I was called from before I was born. Okay. Because uh, I really didn't grow up in church. I uh, really did not go to church or went to church um, when one of my um, father's um, uh, workmates uh, picked us up for Sunday school for a short period of time and took us to his brother's church. Other than that, uh, that was when we were very young. Other than that, uh, I did not grow up in church, but I knew all my life that I was headed for the ministry and I was headed for the church. And so when I went to college, I immediately was a religion major, even though folks tried to discourage me from that and said that I had not explored enough to make up my mind and to declare being a major, but I said I was a religion major. And then mm. when I got into college, I immediately started exploring what seminary I was going to. And I chose Chicago Theological Seminary because of its location in Chicago and because of its uh, reputation around social justice. And so that's been part of my journey. So you knew from beginning of time, that's a calling. You know, and, and I, was, I was reading in the scripture where it says, to Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born. <laughs> yes. And and I and I, I understand that at a, at a whole personal level, um, because I I could not necessarily articulate what was the pull upon my life. I just knew there was a pull upon my life, and I couldn't really articulate for the longest time what was the direction of my life. But somehow, like following a light, I followed that light to define and allows it to define the direction of my life. All right. So you follow that light and you ended up at Plymouth. Well, I ended up, first of all, in Chicago, pastored in Chicago at Park Manor Christian Church as the associate pastor. And then I went out to the west side of Chicago and pastored at uh, uh, Third Unitarian Church. And then I went to Utah and pastored at a church for a short stint. Uh, and then... Um, I uh, ended up uh, being pursued in Chicago by law enforcement because of my involvement with a group called the FALN, which was the Puerto Rican group in Puerto Rico, uh, and I had begun to I became pastor to that group even when they were on the FBI's most wanted list. And finally, um, uh, law enforcement arrested me one day coming from a meeting in, in the loop and held me uh, for several hours in a holding cell and released me mysteriously without ever charging me. And by the time I got back to the church, the fire department was rolling up the hose. And, they, and I felt that that message was very clear to me uh, from law enforcement at that time. And so I began to look for another place to go, another place in which to do my ministry. And I, I felt that that was uh, Boston, Massachusetts, because of all the racial upheaval. And so uh, I sold my furniture and put gas in my car, and I drove to Boston to start organizing in the community there and ended up um, uh, driving camp and organizing a community, uh, a church community. And so it became one of the organizing communities located in the heart of historic Roxbury in Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts. Wow. So how did you end up in D.C.? <laughs> After 12 years in Boston, and I ran for mayor in Boston. We also um, was, was the center of organizing in Boston. Uh, 
with groups like the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. We also had an office of the ANC in the church, as well as numbers of other liberation movements and organizations. And um, and for some weird reason, Plymouth Church uh, started pursuing me to see if they could uh, bring me to Washington, D.C. and accept the call to that church. And finally, after 12 years, I did go come end up in Washington, D.C. So I arrived in D.C. in 1992 from Roxbury, Massachusetts, where I had uh, served and organized. And so ended up sort of being called to do the same thing here. All right. So that's 18 years you've been here. Fantastic. We're, it's been 1992. I think it's 27. 27. All right. <laughs> there goes my math. Okay. We'll, we're going to take our first break and we'll be right back. Everything Cooperative, and Reverend Hagler is our guest today, and we just talked about in that first segment that, you know, he's called to the ministry from birth before he was born and did not have the experience of church growing up. Parents did not take him, and but he decided to major in religion and then figured out where he was going to seminary, went to Chicago, and did seminary school there, then Utah, Boston, been in D.C. for 27 years at Plymouth Congregational Church. So, Reverend Hagler, that, that's a really nice background to get what you knew. And, and I find it interesting because you knew. Everybody would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I don't know. So I, try, I played for excellence. Um, and only about 10 years ago, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up, and that is to promote and develop co-ops. So I got it much later in life, and it's kind of interesting to me that, that you could get it so early on that this is what your calling is on your life, and you have pursued that. Uh, how did you get into the Poor People's Campaign? Well, that- one of the things is, is that I've been organizing and working particularly in those areas all my life. I mean, I can just point out that when I arrived in Boston in 1980, by 1981, I was on trial in Boston. I had arrested in Boston. I'd been charged with assault and battery of a police officer, attempted murder of a police officer, and about 15 other charges, and remained on trial for almost a year. Uh, and, and the real issue was, was that the law enforcement, the district attorney, felt that I was challenging the fixed structure of racism, which I was. Uh, and it was also, I was challenging the issues around class, and uh, and so in, in Boston, I was perceived as a threat. Uh, I'll never forget the district attorney went on TV and said, we have a very dangerous person, an outsized agitator who claims to be a, a clergyman. And uh, that was his press conference mm-hmm. that he wanted 40 years on me in max security prison. We fought that back. I remained in Boston. I, you know, obviously, I continued to organize there. And um, one of the things also is that... Uh, uh, the church in Roxbury particularly was a multiracial church made up of welfare recipients and those who were recovering from addiction as well as intellectuals. And that was the combination of being a place in which people could organize from and change 
uh, the city, challenge the city. And so we've also been doing that in, in, in Plymouth, uh, creating a diverse community, creating an energetic community that can focus theologically. See, one of the things that we need to deal with uh, as we look at what's going on in this country, um, folks do not take Scripture seriously. Because if you take Scripture seriously, you could not end up like the white evangelical church. If you take Scripture seriously, you realize that the issues are really not homosexuality or abortion, but the issues really have to do with how we treat our neighbor, how we expect to be treated. It is a matter of God, of our practice and institution of justice and how we relate to humankind. So it has nothing to do with the what the evangelical church is, is saying that it is. In fact, the, the white evangelical church has proven that it is morally and spiritually bankrupt. Uh, I think over these last few years. And so when I focus upon what, what we're doing, what we're trying to do is one is the soul of the nation to try to revive the soul of the nation, to try to heal the nation, to raise the ethical issues up that are really um, at the core of the gospel. How do we treat our neighbor? How do we relate to the earth? How do we, do we just kill and conquer one another? Or do we uh, strive to coexist? and coexist with dignity and respect. All those types of things that we're focused upon. So, you know, as you deal with even everything co-op, you know, co-ops are people working together, Mm -hmm. people being engaged in a kind of collectivism, people respecting one another and being able to share uh, in the the bounty of, of the earth. And, you know, as I always preach to folks, I say, when you look at Genesis, there was nothing lacking in the garden. Uh, it is only human egos that make things that, that create a an economy where things are scarce. I just wanted that to sink in. Like, I get it. I mean, you said a mouthful, and I'd like to go back to some of the scripture because what I read in the scriptures or what I've studied, it, it talked about not only the golden rule of of I think when those. Uh, disciples asked Jesus what was the most important rules, um, the commandments, and he was saying, God first and only, and then love thy neighbor as thyself. So that was one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the co-op world, you, you have the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. That caring for others, caring for one another is a, just right in the fabric of what a co-op is. And it's like, how do you take care of the least of these, uh, <laughs> the orphans and the widowers and, and people in prison? How do you take care of these? It seemed like that's what Jesus' teaching was all about. So, 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 so I didn't get it until you say things like the white evangelist church is morally and spiritually bankrupt. How can they, they, they get behind a Trump with everything he talks about and how can they not get behind the poor people's campaign that's looking at how do you help people that don't have? And that seems to be Jesus's teaching. Sure. And part of this is because we've always had a foot in this country and in this world, two competing Christianities. One is in the name of Christ that is imperialistic, uh, that is xenophobic, uh, that is built upon a, a, a paradigm of white supremacy is sexist, uh, is basically empire building, and therefore it has nothing to do with the compassion of Jesus 
But again, they exploit the masses with the superstition of Jesus. And uh, on the other hand, there is the other gospel and the other Christian tradition that speaks of liberation, speaks of aid to the captive, letting the oppressed go free, uh, all of the types of things that we really characterize as, as part of, uh, of that golden rule of doing right. You know, I mean, just like you pointed out in that scripture, they asked Jesus, what was the most important commandment? Jesus starts out by saying the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akkad, which means the Lord our God is one. And then he says, and the second one is, is like the first, to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and we, we, we neglect that. We neglect that for this, uh, the superstitious type of gospel. When you look at what's going on in the world, basically there are masses of people that are fed lines of superstition, lines of fantasy, uh, and they become the foot soldiers for the oppressing, oppressing of people. I mean, I look at the religious fanatics, for, for example, in Israel, uh, basically seizing land from the Palestinians, and they're basically uh, um, uh, permitted to do so by those who don't even believe in God, uh, those who are there amassing power like Netanyahu and folks like that. But that seems to be going on all over the world. All over uh, the world. It's, it, it works. It works. If I can tell folks, and remember this, you know, remember the white man's burden? The white man's bird was a so-called pseudo-theological point of view that said the white man was entrusted with civilization, and therefore the white man's bird was to go forth and civilize the rest of the world because Africans and Indians would starve to death if it wasn't for the white man cultivating the land and causing things to produce. Okay, but that <laughs> my engineer and I are here cracking up looking like, yeah, but that just doesn't work. We were... Doing really well long before the white man came along, <laughs> sharing the land, working together, uh, everybody knowing what they were supposed to do and how we help each other. And you talked a lot about that the last go around is that th this sense of working together is is what I believe is at the core of humanity, um, of human being. The being part is how we work together and support each other. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, and, and but the, but the whole idea is that. If you can delude people in thinking that things are scarce, then you can create a whole model that is built upon exploitation and stealing. And people somehow feel justified in it. Exploitation and stealing, because there's not that much to go around, so I got to take what you got. And if I have. If I, if, I, if, I, if I sell that well, then you can get, any, you can get anybody just about to do anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so <laughs> we're going to go into our second break, and I really want to see if we can't pull us out because I'm feeling in the dumps right now, okay, of how can we get some hope back up in here and the kinds of things that we can do, particularly with voting and getting people out uh, organized and voting so we'll have a say in, in, the, in, in the resources, the massive resources that we have. Um, I'm about trying to help people create new dollars, new profit, and then share that. Uh, I'm not so much trying to take from folks that already got, because I don't think they've given up anything, 40 acres and a meal or anything else. 
So how do we get people to get into businesses, to create businesses so that when they make money, they can distribute that money and say where that money goes? So we'll be right back after I take our next break, uh, Reverend Hagler. Thank you so much for all your knowledge and your, your life work. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. The program is being sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And this is why they've been just a great partner with us and supporting us in, in both financially and in ideas of how to get the word out about about co-ops and how you might be able to start one, decide whatever community problem you have, or find one to do business with, whether it's a credit union or a housing co-op or any type of different kinds of co-ops. So this whole idea this year is uh, how to get African-Americans in the vote. So with the uh, Black History Month. So how do you think we can get and educate young people about voting? like you did in the 60s. What can we do? Hello? Okay, it looks like we don't have him on, so maybe we're having some technology difficulty or he can call back. So I, I know when we were talking earlier, I find it very, very disheartening when I hear a young person say, uh, I'm not going to vote. What's the need of my voting? And that just sort of puts their vote, their power, their voice right into what the the rich want, I mean, the wealthy that we were talking about, this pyramid that Dr. Hagler was talking about, the top of the pyramid, what you have are the wealthy people, and they're looking for making rules and and policies and laws that will help them, like this whole tax break that Trump and Mitch McConnell put through. It helped, it helped the wealthy, it helped the corporations, gave them more money, and they talked about that probably trickling down, that they would get it and then they would help other people. And that, that hasn't worked. It didn't work with the Reagan administration. It doesn't work now. And so you you get young folk, particularly, you get all kinds, but particularly when I hear a young person say, no, I'm not voting. My vote doesn't count. And that's exactly what the wealthy want. Um, I grew up in the 60s when we had young people excited about voting because it got that it made a difference. Then how do we get that excitement back to young people? Uh, it looks like young people are for Buttigieg and Sanders, um, Elizabeth Warren. So they, they get behind a candidate. You see it in the college towns. How do you get young African-Americans in the neighborhood to get out and vote? And I think that's part of this organizing that uh, Reverend Hagler was talking about, to get them educated. So the cooperatives have seven principles. The first one, that co-ops are open to everybody and anybody. So it just doesn't make any difference about one's religion or political persuasion or gender or race. It just doesn't make any difference. So that everybody is welcome in a co-op. If the co-op is working with cooperative principles, that is. It just doesn't make any difference. And... The second principle is democratic control, one member, one vote. And that's what makes co-ops very exciting with this voting, that people that get into a co-op, they begin to understand the importance of a co uh, of voting 
and people in co-ops get much more involved in voting, such that you find that we've we've had people on the program that says, and one gentleman from synagogue said that when people in the co-op really got the importance of voting, then they went out and ran for board of education or city council, and people in the co-op became very, very active in electing people. So this voting becomes extremely, extremely important to so you have a say in what happens in your community or in a co-op, what happens in your business. The third one is member economic participation. And in this member economic participation, normally there's a cost to get in. could be in a food co-op, it could be as low as $100 to get in. It gives you the right to buy, a right to vote for the board of directors, or even run for the board, to be on the board. Also, this member economic participation, when you get get in there, you have the right to say what happens to any profit. And that profit, a lot of talk about in three places, three buckets that money could go into. The money, some of the money could stay in the business to help the business to grow. Some of the money could go to social responsibility, things in the neighborhood um, that the, the members say that they want to help to support, or it could go into the hands of the members in a form of a dividend. So the members get to say, the members get to create the profit, and the members get to say what happens to that profit. Profit. The fourth principle is autonomy and independence. A co-op has to have control. The cooperators, the members, must have control of the business. So in a co-op, the type of co-op depends who owns and controls that business. So the four different types of co-ops, if it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. And there's more and more worker cooperatives showing up in the United States now. There's a federation of worker cooperatives that you can get technical support and they can help find uh, capital to start your business and to grow your business. Federation of Worker Co-ops. And if it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or service, then it is called a consumer cooperative. And consumer cooperatives are credit unions and housing co-ops. There's a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin that's owned by the patients. So that's the consumer and the worker co-op. And then you have on both ends of a farm, the farmers need to buy products to help them to to create what they're going to create the farm. And once they create whatever they create on the farm, then they'll have another business to help them to market it. The purchasing co-op is what's on one end, and that helps the farmers to buy the feed, the soil, the, the seed, and whatever they might need. Fertilizer, gasoline, equipment, whatever they might need. They'll create this business that get to be experts in knowing the vendors and creating contracts for the farmers that the farmers don't have to spend time doing that. And that business can make money. And then the farmers create whatever they're going to create, and they have a marketing business. That marketing business is Orlando Lakes. Um, It could be any kind of business that helps that farm market whatever they're going to market. So these are the different types of co-ops and the next, the only next three is education, training, and information. It's the fifth one, which is one of the reasons I love co-ops. It really helps people to understand a co-op and how they operate. And then the sixth one is cooperation among co-ops. 
And the seventh principle is concern for community. So we've got Reverend Hagler, you're back? Back. Sorry about earlier. All right. Well, thank you for, for being back. I was talking about the different types of co-ops and the seven principles of co-ops, hoping that you would come back because I wanted to learn more from you. But there's also just a real quickly in Puerto Rico, there are co-ops inside of the school system. There's about they've had this program for 60 years. They've got 53 different co-ops from elementary school all the way through college. They have these different co-ops that the, that the young folk run them. They own it and run them. And I'd really like to see something like that happen here in the U.S., in the, on the mainland of the U.S., that is. Sure, sure. And before before we took break, we were talking about all of the different things that you're doing. Uh, I know I wanted to get back to the Poor People's Campaign so that people could really understand how they can get involved in this working together Um where people can work together to to solve the issues in the community and to elect officials that will help them. So what are some of the kinds of things that's going on in the D.C. area? Sure. Let me just sort of say this, because one way in which people can get involved is go to um, org and they can sign up uh, in their local, in their state uh, for to work with one of the committees that's working there. Also, we're pushing towards uh, a massive uh, mobilization in Washington, D.C. on uh, June 20th, 2020. Uh, that will be after all of the debates are over, uh, and, uh, and it will be uh, a way in which we begin to uh, impact the, the narrative that exists out there or the lack of narrative that, 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 ex- that doesn't exist uh, to really begin to sort of push into the public conscience, issues around economic justice, environmental justice, racism, the issues of the uh, of militarism that basically robs uh, from local communities, the issue around affordable housing, the issue around uh, prison reform, the issue around all of the things that have been going on uh, in the world that many of us are continually uh, upset over uh, to try to bring people together and also create out of that this idea of a of a fusion politics, a fusion politics where people stay invested with each other, even after the primary issues that they're concerned about may have been addressed, but to stick together and work towards that larger issue of, of, of transformation of the culture, transformation of the society, uh, that we can't go away and can't go home. Uh, in fact, it was fusion government that, governments that was a part of the whole reconstruction effort after the Civil War. Uh, and uh, it was uh, it created such a danger uh, to white supremacist models that folks basically had to um, uh, terrorize it out of existence. And that's a part of where we, we, we have come from, and that's where we uh, end up right now as a society and a culture engaged in this sort of economic disparity, rich versus the poor. Just think, how can we talk about uh, the issues around socialism and, you know, and right now they're saying we want to be able to defeat a socialist, not necessarily endorse them, but a socialist. Because the issue is Americans don't understand what socialism is. Social Security is socialism. Medicare is socialism. Medicaid is socialism. I mean, it is the idea that you address the society's needs. So it, it, it's real clear that 
Americans don't know what socialism is in a different form than definition of social socialism. Um, and right, you, right. you were just talking about socialism programs that are very much inside our inside of our culture. But the ones you didn't mention that are that's striking to me, and that is, um, they are too big to fail. So we take <laughs> tax dollars that everybody pay in, and then give that to the rich people so they don't fail. Oh yeah, you know. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's a good point that you're making because the issue is is not only not only did we give money to them to bail them out, they robbed everybody in the first place, <laughs> and that's the irony of it. So here they are, robbed everybody, and and then we bail them out. Well, and the other thing about this, there's a third cruelty in this is. On those foreclosed homes, they were the only ones mm-hmm. that could that could go into the auction. You had to have two hundred fifty thousand dollars just to look at the list of foreclosed homes. Oh, sure. So. And I'll, I'll give you another interesting piece of the robbery. So they they understood they had they had created loan situations that people could not pay off and people could not get out of. They knew they had junk paper. I'm sorry, sir. We've got to take a break now. And I want you to come back and explain that in detail because I want to get it. This other robbery that you're talking about. But we'll be right back. Your news talk station. Cooperative with Dr. Hagler, our guest today. And you were explaining, Dr. Hagler, before we took our final break, you were talking about the other theft, robbery, and you were explaining how they have done that. How did that manifest? Well, basically, the banks and the mortgage companies, they knew they had written bad paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew they had written mortgages that people could not afford to pay back. Uh, they knew that they had basically uh, had had escalating interest rates on people, uh, and they sold it to them on the promise that ex- that the that the interest rate was going to go down and not go up, that type of stuff. And then they securitized this paper and they sold it on the open market, Wall Street, and all the other financial centers, knowing full well that the paper was bad. And then most of them turned around and shorted the paper basically buying options, put options on the paper, uh, betting that it was going to fall apart. And so in a sense, they sold it, and then they turned around and they played the failure of it and made profits off of that. Wow. Wow. They made it hands coming and going. Coming and going. And I need to point out, they did the same thing with slavery. They basically sold land. Uh, in the Louisiana Purchase, based on how much cotton a black hand, that's why they call them hands, could pick in a day. And and basically they loaned money based on uh, how many uh, enslaved people you had. And the enslaved people you had were also bought on credit. So you bought the land and the enslaved people on credit. Then the bank securitized that paper and sold it to Wall Street sold it to the bankers in Hartford and, and the insurance companies showed it, sold it in London and all the European markets. And, of course, when cotton fell, the whole thing unraveled. And basically you had upheaval because those enslaved individuals had to be auctioned off again uh, to save, uh, uh, to, save uh, to get out of debt. 
all those types of things. So the model keeps uh, replicating itself, and it's important that we understand these models because these models really don't change, just the, just the context of them change. So you have the wealthy getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier with these models, and you have poor people getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And the wealthy will say you're poor because you're lazy or you're no good or you're shiftless or God is is not on your side. That's right. Wow. I mean, think of the, the how how ludicrous the system is. So your credit is not necessarily good because you live hand to mouth. And so because you live hand to mouth, when you come and get credit, I'm going to charge you more for the credit based upon the idea that you're a greater risk. Whereas if you're rich and you got money and you come to the bank, you get preferential rates. You already have, and now basically the system is set up so that you can have cheaper rates and therefore get more. Absolutely. And because you have poor credit, you're going to pay two, three times more. The wealthy may be paying uh, 2% interest, and you might be paying 6 to 12% interest if you have right. that poor credit. And because you're paying so much interest, there's a higher risk that you will fail. Right. And, and see, the, the issue would be opposite with the gospel perspective. And the gospel perspective was because you have lived hand to mouth, because you are struggling to survive, then therefore uh, capital should be available to you at a lesser rate, uh, even though, you know, the the, the Old Testament does not ever advocate any interest, right? I mean, but uh, but it would be first. It would be the opposite. That you know, that's the first being last, and the last being first. And uh, and so we basically have 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 come to screw up this idea because we have equated our sense of our sense of Christianity, if I can put it that way, with mm-hmm. capitalism and capitalism with Christianity. Okay, so. I want to say something that I've gotten into trouble with with some of my friends from West Virginia. I like socialism. I like the definition of socialism. Um, I don't like what's the definition I have is the definition of what what a co-op is. It's owned by the people. The people own the business. They do the work. They own the profits, and then they get to share in on those profits. That, That is by definition of socialist organization. Uh, the part of socialism I don't like is when the the government gets in and they own the businesses. Uh, I don't like that part of it, the Stalin stuff well, see, and all of that. Um, I, I I agree with you, but you know one of the things we got to be careful of is again the narrative that's been presented, because like for example, and 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 this funny guy, strange guy, racist guy in the White House always loves to point out Venezuela. Yeah. Venezuela, Venezuela was all right until U.S. intervention in Venezuela and, and, and possibly the assassination of Venezuela's leader, Hugo Chavez. One of the things that had happened in Venezuela that upset them was that the, the, the fossil, fossil industry, fossil fuel industry, had been in the hands of one family for almost 100 years, and that became nationalized. In other words, those who, the oligarchs, were upset, uh, were basically removed from their grip of having economic uh, power and economic voice. And see, one of the things that happened is that, of course, capitalists get upset when that's disrupted. It's just like uh, uh, when, when, when the first thing that uh, 
Fidel does in Cuba after the revolution is nationalize the land that was in the hands of a few companies, and particularly, you know, the United Fruit Company uh, that had been largely responsible for a lot of the exportation in Latin America. I mean, so there's sometimes those drastic things. But I understand what you're saying, because I, I think I look at it this way. Um, the, the issue is, is that when you talk about co-ops, you're talking really about a village experience. Right. Right. That people are engaged and people recognize that they are, they, they are interdependent upon one another that the energy of each other contributes to the success and health. Uh, and, and, and again, I want to point out, that's a biblical concept. Yes. Now, the, the Venezuelan under Mandura, I don't think they were socialists as much as those programs were populist. They, they put those programs in place so they could stay in, in power. Uh, oh, yeah. But see, but, but Maduro inherits the wreckage that comes after Chavez. Right. Uh, right, uh, because the pressure was put on, and and so he ends up, um, and I'm not making excuses for him, but he ends up in the survivalist mentality, uh, which is not necessarily a very healthy mentality to be in. Uh, and of course, to make matters worse, then you go and you have somebody else now that you call um, uh, president, and so you make the you make the context even worse. So uh, this this democratic socialism that Bernie says he is and the, the, the Nordic countries say that they are. Um, they have these socialist programs under in a democratic political um, program. There was a guy that called that said that they're not socialists as much as they're compassionate capitalism. And I like that term. I love it if we could get capitalism to be compassionate. That would be awesome. <laughs> That that, that 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 would be hard because you've got to take the uh, the greed out of capitalism, and uh, you know, and, and 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 so there's always that temptation. Where when we look at it, we look at every single indigenous village, like in Africa, uh, or in uh, native populations uh, around the world, uh, they have all lived in a way in which they have had a mentality of taking care of one another. Um, the village becomes strong because they're able to share in the resources of the village is weak because the resources, uh, there's a failure, there's a breakdown in relationship. And I would love to see more of that here in the U.S., and this is why I like the co-op business model so much because it, that's the whole core of it when it functions and functions well, just like the rural electric co-ops. They they ha they have lines of eighty percent of the land mass. So it's about nine hundred businesses that really provide electricity for most of the U.S. Uh, because in the thirties and forties, the people with money would not string lines. It cost too much money to string lines all, all all of this farm area and rural area. So they created these small these businesses that go create these lines and the, the, everybody that's on these meters own these companies uh, and it really works so they are functioning well and providing great services for masses of people and most of the land mass in the US sir we uh, with the technology problem the technical problem we have we only have about a minute left so how what would you like to leave people with i, I want people to get out and vote and i want people to learn about co-ops and stardom what would you like to leave people with today and and, and i think that that's that's part of it is that people need to yes get out and vote 
They need to register people to vote. They need to vote for hope and not despair. They need to vote against racism. They need to vote against naked, greedy capitalism. They need to vote against billionaires and millionaires um, and, and, and vote for themselves uh, and not the, the illusions that exist. Uh, and so we urge people to really, really um, uh, organize and motivate themselves because one thing I think we've got to be clear about, and I'm absolutely clear about it, if we give this man uh, four more years, then I have no idea what will happen to the black and brown community, and I have no idea what will happen to our neighborhoods and communities. Uh, and I think that he is a, a real danger, danger to democracy, danger to things like co-ops, danger to the communal life of, uh, of uh, sisters and brothers of all stripes and all nationalities out there. So let's get out and vote, everybody. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. It's good Thank to you. hear your voice again. It's a pleasure. We'll see you. Talk Station.